0: It is, again, a great privilege to be here in the presence of God with you, brothers and sisters. Um, And I would ask that as we turn our attention now to God's Word, you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and I will begin reading verse number 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the inspired, infallible, authoritative, and all sufficient word of the Lord our God. Let's bow before him now in prayer and ask his help in our time together. Father, we come in the name of your Son, who is a rock. Except our God. Who is the Lord except you alone? Father, we confess that all we bring this evening is need. But we trust that you and your grace, because of what Christ has accomplished for us on our, on our behalf, you now invite us to your throne to find mercy. And grace to help us in our time of need. You've been so good, Father, to give us Your Word. To send Your Son. To pour out Your Spirit on us richly because of Christ. To give us, brothers and sisters, to give us this Lord's Day. So will You now come in the abundance of Your grace and Your infinite steadfast love use your word to sanctify your people. Amen. We come once again to our Lord's words here in, in what is known by many of us as the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to continue considering the subject of prayer, particularly personal prayer. And as we begin, I want to set before you a question, a question that I hope will drive our time in the Scriptures together. A question that I first heard a few years ago in a sermon preached by Albert Martin. Are you content with the fact that you pray? I ask that because it's not a rare thing today to find a professing Christian who doesn't pray at all. In fact, it's more rare to find a professing Christian who does pray other than at mealtimes or in corporate gatherings or during tragedies. And because we see this reality that so few professing Christians pray, it's easy to fall into the rut of being content with the fact that we pray. And if we fall into that rut, it's easy to stay there comfortably and persist with an unbiblical view of what true prayer is. Remember, as we hear these words of Christ, He's teaching His disciples. Chapter 5 opens with these words, Seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when He was set down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them. Taught who? His disciples. Those who with their mouth professed some kind of association to Him. Those who with their presence expressed their desire to learn of Him and to go by His name. He's teaching His disciples. And yet in the passage we just read, we heard the words hypocrite, heathen. So keep in mind, Christ is using such strong language to teach his disciples. And he doesn't say, I know you all are not hypocrites and you're not praying like the heathen, so keep up, you're doing a great job. He gives a warning. He issues a command do not pray like the hypocrites, do not pray like the heathen. And he gives this warning and these commands because the reality is there is a temptation. And there is a proneness to pray like a hypocrite or to pray like an idolater. Because of that temptation, because of that proneness that comes from indwelling sin, it is not sufficient to rest in the fact that you pray. Remember, the hypocrite prays. The heathen pray. So we must not rest confidently in the fact that we pray. Christ is giving this instruction to manifest to His people that even they are susceptible to inappropriate, unbiblical prayer. And this passage begins, as we heard last week, with the priority of prayer as Christ addresses the whole subject with not an if, but a when. That is, prayer is not a special gift, it's not a ministry, it's not a calling, it's not an option. It is natural and obligatory for the people of God, and it is a delight to the people of God. It is, as I said last week, as necessary to the Christian life as breathing is to the natural life. And Christ begins then moving from the obligation of prayer and the priority of prayer to addressing hypocritical prayer, who prays The hypocrite who prays publicly, not to forbid public prayer, the issue, remember, is not what the hypocrite was doing. The problem wasn't that he was praying, nor was the problem where he was praying. The problem was his motivation. And our Lord contrasted that to say that the true motivation of the child of God must be simply to be with the Father. And he gives us this contrast because he can set before us the prayer of the hypocrite who wants to be seen by men. And all of us can say, I know that example. I can relate to that. And that sets the stage for him to say, don't do that. Don't be like that. And now having considered that example... Last Lord's Day evening, we turn to the next example where Christ once again will set before us an example of what we ought not to do, an example that resonates deeply with who we are and our condition as sons and daughters of a fallen humanity. This evening, we want to consider personal prayer as it relates to the heathen. We want to consider that under two headings. First of all, the practice of prayer... And then secondly, the position of prayer. So notice, first of all, the practice of prayer. Christ begins the contrast by giving us the negative example in the practice of the heathen. He says in verse number 7, When you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. Now, one of the reasons that I'm reading from the authorized text is because many of us can feel a little bit more of the harshness and the sting behind a word like heathen as opposed to a word like Gentiles. But even though we feel that that's a harsher word, it's a little bit foreign to us. So we want to ask the question, who are the heathen? Well, we know Matthew is writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit to a mostly, a mostly Jewish audience. And so as he says the word heathen, or unbeliever, or Gentile, to a Jewish audience, there was no doubt in their minds who he was talking about. We can hear the word Gentile and think of those who are not ethnically Jews, those who are outside of the ethnic commonwealth of Israel, and that is true, but there's more to it than that. We read in the pages of the Old Testament how people who were not ethnically Jewish were brought into the commonwealth of Israel. But for the Jew to be outside the commonwealth of Israel, to be a heathen, was to be someone who was ignorant as to the knowledge of the true and living God. The heathen were those who had received no special revelation. God had not spoken to them by prophets. God had not sent to them visions and dreams. God had not given to the heathen the revelation of His character on tablets of stone. The heathen were those who had not been enlightened concerning the things of God that were necessary to know for life and salvation. The heathen were those who took the glory of God, His eternal power and divine nature so clearly revealed in creation. And they said, there must be a God but let's make this God after our own imagination. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The heathen were those who imagined gods in their own minds, gods to suit their own passions, gods who would accomplish their own purposes. And therefore, all of the heathen worship of their heathen gods was likewise after their own Passions, according to their own imaginations. And it is these people that Christ points to as the negative example. It is the practice of these people that Christ is setting before His own people to say, don't pray like that. So what was the practice of these heathen people? Their prayer was simply vain repetition. Their prayer was nothing more than heaping up Empty phrases, the insincere repeating of the same words over and over and over in sort of a mind numbing, thoughtless, heartless exercise of the memory and engagement of noise. We see an example of this in the scriptures. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. First Kings 18, we see the great contest between Elijah, the man of God, and the prophets of Baal. And beginning in verse 25, we read this. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. And call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under and they took the bullock which was given them, they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, Oh Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. Thoughtless, ignorant, empty repetition of words for hours. Hours. And when I was in India... I spent my time there and also in Toronto working among the Tibetan Buddhist peoples. And if you ever see a Tibetan Buddhist, they'll be carrying around their prayer beads. There are 108 of them. And every time they say 108 prayers, they are heaping up merit for themselves in an attempt to escape the repetition of this cycle of pain and suffering and reach their nirvana. And it's so amazing to me. You could sit and you could be engaging with a Tibetan man or woman in the square, and they still have their beads carrying on a conversation with you. And while you're talking, they're uttering under their lips their prayers. Bead after bead after bead after bead. Likewise, you go to the Tibetan temple and set up in a specific pattern. There will be prayer wheels. Different prayers written on the prayer wheels. And you will see people from two to three years old to their upper 90s, walking in these specific patterns, spinning these prayer wheels, hoping that every time the wheel goes around, they will get some merit for repeating that prayer. And they do this for hours and hours and hours. You go from the court where the prayer wheels are into the inner part of the Tibetan temple where their idols are. and You'll see them engaging in what I call Tibetan up-downs. You'll see people of all ages, of all walks of life, of all social classes, coming from the top of their head, going all the way down and extending themselves prostrate on the floor before their idols, coming up and doing it again for hours and hours and hours. This is the prayer of the heathen. Vain repetition. Prayer that's founded on and fueled by ignorance of the true and living God. But we see here in our text, vain repetition is also described as much speaking or many words. This means vain repetition can also be the practice of lengthy, wordy, seemingly eloquent prayers. We see that this kind of prayer is focused on the length of the words That is the practice of the heathen. I have to pray five hours a day. This is the month of Ramadan. I must pray from the time the sun comes up to the time the sun goes down. I must avoid food and devote all of my time to prayer. Five times a day at the hour of prayer. I must give myself to a certain number of prayers or a certain length of prayer. This is the practice of the heathen, the unbelievers, those ignorant of God and His ways. And we see here that Christ sets the contrast by showing not just the practice of the heathen, but the practice of the child of God. In order to contrast the the prayer of the true child of God, our Lord sets before us in a way that is so simplistic, none of us here can miss it. Get this, here's the practice of the child of God. This is the first thing He says. Don't do that. You know what that is. Don't do that. Verse 7. Verse 7. When ye pray, use not vain repetitions. Verse 8, Be not ye therefore like unto them. So when we consider what then should be the practice of the true child of God in prayer. Well, the first thing we know is what it ought not to be. It ought not to be vain, empty, repetition of words that thinks it will be heard for its words or for its length. Now, very important we understand this. Our Lord is not teaching us that it is sinful to bring the same thing before God over and over in prayer. The scripture actually specifically commands us to seek, to knock, to ask. Keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. We see the example of this as Paul has his thorn in the flesh. He says three times. That wasn't just three prayers. Here's three periods of time that he set aside to seeking the Lord over this one particular issue in prayer. We see our Lord in the agony of Gethsemane retreating to prayer the first time praying, coming back, and then it says, and He went again and prayed as before. We see Daniel so troubled by his vision that he spends three weeks in prayer concerning it. We have commands in the Scripture like pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. So the Lord is not prohibiting repetition. He's prohibiting vain repetition. I mentioned to Ryan before that I was going to bring this up. It was a a few years ago... Uh, maybe more than a few, it seems like it's been forever, but Ryan and I were both sitting on the front row of the church we were going to at that time. And there were a couple of prayers, if I remember it correctly, that day in the service or over a period of services where we noticed everyone was saying the same thing. At some point during the prayer, somebody said, Lord, uh, lead God and direct us have your will and way of service. Lead Guide and direct us. And then I remember hearing it in a John Piper sermon. He was saying he recognized the same thing. And so Ryan and I decided that we were going to start saying LGD, LGD, lead, God, direct us, lead, God, direct us. That's just what everybody said. Empty. Thoughtlessly. Vainly. Likewise, you'll hear people pray and it's Father God this, Father God that, and Father God this, and Father God that, and Father God this, and Father God that. Father God this, Father God that. Ten times in three requests. There is the vain repetition of word-for-word prayer. We've all heard them. Maybe we've prayed some of them. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the food that's before us. Help it to provide food and nourishment for our body. Bless the hands that prepared us. Bring it, bring it back at the next appointed time. In Jesus' name, amen. Vain repetition. Now... For the sake of clarity, hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. I understand that there are times in the Christian life where there will be what I call developmental repetition. There are times as we are developing and growing and nurturing and maturing, especially as a young believer, where there will be things like Father God and Lord over and over and over, or the same prayers because this is we're learning how to pray. We don't know. My two-year-old, John Paul, if if he's coming up to tell me a story, he will probably say, Dad, 15 times in three sentences. He's two. Now, when he's 12, if he still comes up to me and says, Hey, Dad, how was your day in the office, Dad? Is there anything you want me to do, Dad? Dad, have you seen what I did to my room? Dad, what are we having for supper, Dad? Are you excited about supper, Dad? Dad, have you talked to Mom yet, Dad? It would be weird. He would say, Something's wrong developmentally there. But as we develop... As we grow, our ability to commune with the Lord grows. So the issue that we're talking about here is those who are professing to be growing, professing to be maturing, or some who've been walking with the Lord for years, and all they know how to pray, LGD, lead God direct lead God direct lead God direct us. The problem is not those words that they're saying. The problem is vain, insincere, thoughtless, heartless, empty repetition. The Lord says, don't do that. So He's not prohibiting repetition. He's prohibiting vain repetition. Likewise, the Lord is not prohibiting or forbidding the practice of lengthy prayers. We see lengthy prayers all throughout the Scripture. Christ praying all night. Daniel, as I mentioned, praying for three weeks. Paul praying for three seasons again. Praying for a long time is not the issue. The issue is praying a long time hoping that God will be impressed by your devotion. What Jesus is teaching His disciples all the way down to us this evening is that God is not concerned with the quantity of words you bring to prayer. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. What Christ is commanding and what God is seeking in prayer is the engagement of the mind Prayer according to knowledge. As Paul told the Corinthians, I will pray in the Spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. Prayer that flows from a proper understanding of who God is. Engagement of the mind. Prayer that's actually giving thought to the words being communicated. And not just engagement of the mind, but engagement of the sanctified affections. Prayer that actually flows forth from a soul that loves God and seeks to be in His presence and grow more and more. And not just engagement, but sincerity. Sincerity of the mind. Sincerity of the affections. Remember that definition I read last week from John Bunyan about what true prayer is. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible Affectionate pouring out of the soul to God through Christ by the assistance of the Spirit for the things God had promised in His Word for the good of the church. This is where we ask Is there anything sincere about the exercise of just saying the same words over and over and over and over? Is there anything affectionate about long, lengthy prayers that are just made to demonstrate theological knowledge? your motivation is merely to pray certain words that's vain if your motivation is just to pray for an hour that's vain the Pharisees were those who for pretense made long prayer Paul and I have discussed this before some people will listen to Paul Washer preaching about prayer and he'll talk about when have you laid hold of the horns of the altar when have you kept the night watch and everyone in there feels about this big So what do they do? I'm going home to keep the night watch. And about seven minutes in, they come face to face with a a terrifying reality. Ignorance of who God is and ignorance of who they are. So there's boredom. The vain repetition begins. The distractions come. And either sleep or the cell phone wins the day. And their conclusion is, well, I just must not have the gifts that Paul Washer had. That's vain. Prayer's not concerned with time. It's concerned with God. You go to the secret place not so I can go get my hour in prayer. You go to the secret place because you recognize I need to be with God. Maybe I'm there 15 minutes. Maybe I'm there for 40 days and 40 nights, as we heard of Moses twice. Whatever it is, the goal is to be with the Father. Don't practice prayer the way the heathen do. This is where Jesus begins the first point of instruction. Don't do that. Don't pray that way. And now, just as with the prayer of the hypocrite, Christ goes deeper because the practice is just a symptom. It's just a manifestation of the foundational issue. The problem is not the words. The problem is not necessarily the length. They flow out of the problem. The problem is, as has been hinted at several times now, ignorance of God and ignorance of self. So we want to see not just the practice of prayer, but also the position of prayer. We see, first of all, the position of the heathen. Why do the heathen pray this way? Our Lord tells us, verse 7, They think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. The pagans pray this way from a position that views their God or their gods as those who need to be convinced of something. They look at God and they say, This God needs to be appeased and persuaded to consider me. So what can I do to appease or persuade or convince them? I have to say those words. I have to say those words this many times. I need to give myself to this much prayer so that God will see how devoted I am. This flows from a false view of God. See, in their view, their God is one who is distant. Their God is one who is unconcerned. But their God is also one who is passable. One whom they can impact. One whom they can influence. One whom they can persuade and bend to come down and hear their cries and change His mind or His desires for their good. So then they pray vain, repetitious prayers. They spend hours a day hoping their God will see and answer Their ignorance of who God truly is, of what prayer truly is, mixed together with the imaginations of their sinful desires, produces vain, empty, repetitious prayer. And ultimately, this all comes to the head as they see themselves as the One who is Almighty. Their prayers are what can affect and influence and change and persuade Their repetition, their time causes God to hear and to receive. And that's their position. That's their relationship with their God. So that's how they pray. And now Christ points back and says, don't be like that. But He goes further. He doesn't just say, don't be like that. He points us to the position of the child of God. verse 8 He says, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for... Here's a reason, not just a command, a reason. Here's why you don't pray that way. Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. Christ says, Why should you not pray like the heathen? You are praying from a different position. You're praying from a different position. Your Father knows. Your Father. Those two words bring down an, in, an eternity, an infinite overflow of graciousness to sinful men like us. You understand the power of those words referring to the Almighty God as your Father. Not just the Father, your Father. Do you feel something of the sweetness of those words? Not just God the Father, not just Father God, your Father, our Lord is reminding us here, the position of a true child of God is just that. The position of a child of God. So we don't come in prayer to a God who is far away. We come in prayer to a God who because of His Son, has come down and taken up residence in the souls of His people. We come to a God who does not just inhabit eternity, but condescends to dwell with the lowly. We come to a God who's not far away, seeking to be convinced that His time is worth it, but a God who looks on the needy and lifts them up from the ash heap and sits them among princes, among His own sons. We come before this God as His children, as the objects of His love, those upon whom He looked before there was anything created. And He said, "...in love..." I will choose them and predestine them to be My sons. In love, we come before the God who said, Those are the ones whom I will give to My Son as an expression of My love for Him. And those are the ones for whom I will give up My Son as an expression of My love for them. We are His children accepted in the Beloved and we come to Him as our Father. Now that concept is simple enough, but here's what it means. In order to pray as you ought, you must have a biblical theology of sonship. You must have a biblical theology of sonship. As it has been said, the Christian life is more than just knowledge but it is not less than that. There must be a biblical theology of adoption and sonship. Because the relationship you have, your position, if you are in Christ, is no longer just creator and creature. It is now son of God and father. You've been adopted into his family. You exist in a position that is one of familial relationship. The relationship of a father and a son. It is a relationship of protection. This is why we can pray later as Christ will set before us the pattern of prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why can you pray that and hope that God will listen? Because a father protects his children. We we, we live, as many of you know, just right beside our chapel. And oftentimes when we're going to church on Wednesday evening or going to men's Bible study on Thursday, it's already dark outside. And John Paul will be walking beside of me, and I've normally got a bag and a cup of coffee. And about two steps out the door, if it's dark, he'll say, Daddy, hold me. Daddy, hold me. And he doesn't ask that question wondering if this guy beside of him is going to care enough about him to pick him up and make him feel safe and keep him safe. Why? None of your children would look at me in a dark parking lot and say, Daddy, hold me. I'm not their father. But I am his father. And because I am his father and he is my child, there exists this relationship of protection. But it's also a relationship of provision. I've said this before to some of the people in our congregation. None of my kids wake up wondering if they're going to have food to eat. They don't wake up on Tuesday morning and say, well, it's grocery day. We better go to the grocery store so we all have some food to eat. No, they they look to their father and to their mother to provide for them. But none of your kids look to me that way because I'm not their father. But our relationship with God is now a relationship of a father. And he provides for his children. This is why we can pray as we'll see in a, in a later next week. That We see here the prayer is give us. Give us. We need provision. And we can claim that from God because if we are in Christ, we stand in a position where he is our father. And that is a position of provision. But it's also a position of affection and love. I get on my kids' nerves sometimes because they just about can't walk past without me rubbing them on the head, squeezing them really hard or giving them a kiss. And Piper especially now. She's older and she's already smarter than me. She'll walk past and I'll squeeze her up and kiss her and she'll say, Dad, stop! But there's just delight. When I see my children, there's delight. Sometimes I see them playing in the floor and I'll just be so overwhelmed with love and affection for my children, I just sit in my chair and cry. And my wife's like, why are you crying? I love my my babies. If I, who am evil, know how to look upon my children with affection, how much more our great, infinitely perfect God How much more does he look upon his children with affection? This is how God demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is a relationship of affection, it's a relationship of concern. When my kids come to me crying, hurt, or sad, or upset, I don't say, Get away from me. More often than not, I'll get down on one knee and I'll say, What's the matter? Because there's genuine concern there. Scripture tells us specifically concerning prayer. We come and we can cast all of our cares, all of our anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Why does He care? Because you stand in a new position toward Him. It's no longer a position of ignorance or of imagination or of tradition or of speculation. It is a position of a father and a son. This new position is a relationship of guidance and instruction. Those of us who have children have all witnessed, especially our younger children, trying to do something that they have absolutely no idea how to do. And as you watch, you watch for a second, and then you go over, and you could just do it for them, but you want them to learn. You have this desire that they figure things out because you don't want to still make them a bowl of cereal when they're 25 years old. So you go over and you give guidance. An instruction. And as they grow, that goes beyond the realms of just cereal. It goes to following God, to seeking Him in His Word, to the truths of the Gospel, to what a man ought to be, what a woman ought to be, how we ought to be in relationships with one another. All of this guidance and all of this instruction. This is now the relationship we stand in to God as our Father. Not just God has spoken and revealed Himself, but now He's given you His Spirit. The spirit of adoption. Who doesn't just cry out, Abba, Father. But who also comes and gives you an understanding of these things God has freely revealed. So as our Father, He gives guidance and instruction. As our Father, He also gives discipline. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Just as every father does the Son whom He loves. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Show me a father who will not discipline his son and I'll show you a father who hates his son. God disciplines His children for their good. And if you are a believer, this is now the relationship you stand in to God the Father. And you must understand not just the reality of this relationship, but you must understand you are in this relationship because of God. You did not choose him to be your father. You did not walk through the adoption halls and say, Well, here's a father. Tell me what you can do for me. I don't think that sounds good. Let me try this guy. What will you do for me? No, he, he chose you. He chose to adopt you. James 1 says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. First Peter 1 says, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. You stand in this relationship entirely because of Him and His initiative and His desire and His accomplishment. So if you are in this relationship, it is because of God the Father. It is also through Jesus Christ. We read in John 1, To all who did receive Christ, who believed in His name, the Father gave the right to become the children of God. That we stand in this relationship not because God was pleased to say, You're pretty great. I think I'll take you. You you would bring some honor to the family. But we stand in this relationship because of what Christ has done. Again, Peter tells us, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And we stand in this relationship Because of the Spirit. Titus chapter 3 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it's all of God's grace. We didn't adopt Him. He adopted us. We did not cause ourselves to be born again. He caused us to be born again. We didn't earn our spot at the family table. Christ died in order that we might be brought in. We didn't apply the gifts of Christ to ourselves. The Spirit had to come and pour them out on us in His regenerating power. This is the foundation and the fuel of biblical prayer. If you don't have a biblical understanding of sonship of adoption, and of the true biblical gospel, you will not pray as you ought to pray. This is how we pray in a God-exalting, Christ-honoring, Spirit-empowered, gospel-centered way. We must understand who God is and understand our position before Him. That's the key to this whole passage. We go back to last week. He said what? Go pray in secret. Why? That's where the Father is. We look where we are here. And He says, you don't pray that way. Why? Because you're Father. That's why. We go on next week in the pattern of prayer that's set before us. How does it begin? Our Father. That's the key to this whole text. Understanding who God is and our position to Him in Christ. He is your Father. You must realize who He is and who you are before Him. And then you pray from that position. He is your Father. And it doesn't stop there. Your Father knows what you have need of. This God who is your Father is the living, almighty, omniscient God. He knows. He knows all things, but specifically He knows you And He knows your needs. This is not infinite knowledge in general. This is infinite knowledge applied in an intimate way. He doesn't just know all things. He doesn't just see the end from the beginning. That's true. But He knows your needs. He knows your needs. Needs Because He is your Father and you are His child. He knows what you need. He knows what is good for you. He knows the ways that He is working in your life to bring about your conformity to Christ. And He has promised, I am working all things together for your good. I know what you need even before you ask. You have to come and inform me in prayer. I know. And I don't just know what you want. I know what you need. This means that our prayer is not about bending God's will. This is, this is what permeates the prayer meetings that so many of us have been a part of. Can we get together and convince God to change His mind and send a revival? Zach just showed me before the service. Someone twisting the Scripture. And the essence of that Scripture twisting was this. Can we get together and pray and convince God to blow the coronavirus back over to China where all those sinful people are? Prayer is not about bending God's will, nor is it about impressing Him with devotion. He knows. Prayer is not a tool of persuasion. It is a channel of communion with God. It's children coming to their Father who knows all things, who knows what they need, and who has promised them every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So there's no need for vain repetition. There's no need for persuasion. He knows. He is able. And He works all things together for good. You know, sometimes... My children ask me for things that I'm not able to give them. Piper wants a horse. Like really wants a horse. If there's a holiday or special occasion, she's thinking about it ahead of time and asking, will you buy me a horse? Will you buy me a horse for St. Patrick's Day? Well, number one... You don't really buy people stuff for St. Patrick's Day. And number two, no, I don't have the money for a horse. We don't have land for a horse. I don't have the time or desire to care for a horse. I know you won't really care for a horse. Fortunately, I am not able to get you a horse. Now, this happens all the time. My children ask me things that because of my insufficiencies or inabilities, I am not able to give them. That is not the case with our Father in heaven. There are no insufficiencies in Him. There is no promise that He has made that He is unable to fulfill. There is not a word that He has spoken that will fall to the ground. He is able to do abundantly beyond what we can ask or even imagine. That's our Father who is in heaven. So never will we come to Him and find Him unable or insufficient to meet our needs. Other times, my children ask for things that I in my selfishness and sinfulness am unwilling to give them. If I'm reading a book, right now I'm reading uh, The Memoir and Remains of Robert Murray McShane, and I'm sitting in my chair, it's late in the evening, everything's winding down, we've just finished family worship, now the kids are getting their last minute wiggles out, right before we go to bed, and I pull my book off the shelf, I open it up, I'm three sentences in, and somebody needs something off the bathroom counter that they can't read. Tired. I just want to sit here and read my book will you please go ask your mother mommy said she couldn't well I can't either so sorry selfish unwillingness never one time do you come to the father in the name of the son claiming his promises and find him selfishly unwilling never He says, no good thing do I withhold from those who walk uprightly. And yes, we do not often walk uprightly, but Christ did for us. And He has earned and accomplished all the promises of God. They find their yes and their amen. So if God gives to Christ all good things and I am in Christ, He will give me all good things in Christ. So as I come to Him, I don't find a weak, unable, insufficient father or a selfish, sinful, unwilling father. I find the true and the living God who invites me and promises me that He will give me all good things in Christ. So, does that mean you don't need to ask then? Well, that's not what the text says. It doesn't say your Father knows, so don't ask. It says your Father knows, so pray like this. Jesus is not throwing prayer to the side. It doesn't mean we don't ask. The Scripture commands us to ask. Because we are in our proper place when we live in a constant consciousness of our absolute dependence on our Father for everything. And as we come before Him as His children in prayer, expressing that awareness, expressing that dependence, confessing and praising Him for all that He has done, we find what it means to have communion with God as a weak Feeble, needy, unworthy creature of the dust, who because of Christ have been lifted from that ash heap and made a son. So we still ask. It doesn't mean you don't ask. But also, it doesn't mean that there will not be seasons where you need to come again and again and again and again. There will be seasons of striving and agonizing in prayer. But we must take this theology and apply it to those seasons. That striving, that agonizing is not like the heathen. It's not to convince God or to bend His will or to earn His favor or to impress Him. In fact, those seasons of striving are for our sanctification. They're for our good. In that striving, our will is bent. And through the Scriptures and that striving, our will is conformed to His will. You remember Jacob. How he strove with God. He wrestled with God. He had come back to his homeland and out of fear of his brother, he sends drove after drove of people. Drove after drove of gift. How can I appease my brother? He had more fear of Esau than he did of God. And not once in all of that fear did he turn to God. And so as they fi- he finally meets Esau. He goes back away. He sent everyone away. His wife and his children have already gone on. He's alone. And what happens? They are met a man with him. And they wrestle. And we know this from Scripture that this is the Lord who wrestled with him. And all of the mystery of that great scene aside, christophanes Theophanes, whatever you want to call them, all of the mystery that surrounds that aside, not, not letting that distract us, here's what we need to focus on. Jacob would not let him go. Jacob didn't go look for this man to wrestle with. Jacob didn't say, you know what? I'm going to face my brother tomorrow. I need somebody to to stretch me out and loosen me up. Somebody find me a man to wrestle. This man wrestled with him. This man jumped on him. And yet, Jacob would not let him go. And what happened? Jacob left there walking different. Not the Lord. Jacob left there with a new name. Not the Lord. The striving was not for God's benefit. God had come there to wrestle with Jacob for His benefit. To change him. This is what our seasons of striving are about. About changing us. We see this with Paul as he pleads before the Lord concerning his thorn. The thorn was never taken away but Paul tasted the all-sufficient grace of God. So yes, there will be seasons where you bring the same thing over and over and over, but don't do it vainly like the heathen. You come with a proper understanding of who God is, a proper understanding of your position before Him, and you pray. So in these simple words, this simple contrast, we want to ask ourselves, is this truth Intended to impact how we pray. Yes. Has this truth impacted how you pray? Do you have the practice of the heathen? Or of the child of God? Have you left all of your knowledge of God in study? And not brought it to prayer? Or is your prayer founded on and carried out in a proper knowledge of God And of the gospel applied to you? Is your prayer sensible and sincere? Or thoughtless? Empty? Repetitious? Is there an affectionate pouring out of your soul to the Father? I'm not asking if you cry when you pray. I'm asking is there an affectionate pouring out of your sanctified and redeemed inner man before God Almighty in light of who He has revealed Himself to be? Or is your prayer just the empty muttering of Christian words? Do you pray from a position of trying to persuade God or impress Him? Or do you pray from a position of a child of the Almighty God who knows all your needs, who's promised to meet all of your needs, whose Son purchased everything you will ever need for life and godliness? We must not pray like the heathen. (coughs) Why? Because our Father knows. Our Father knows. Let's pray together.